fundamentally, history will judge not simply how countries handled really these first six or eight or 10 months of the health crisis, but also how they built back out of it, right? Some of the leading global vaccines have been produced in the West, in the United States, in Europe. And obviously, the solution to the health crisis is an effective vaccine where you've seen Western companies really lead it. You also will, uh, I think, be judged as a country on your economic resiliency and your ability to, to build back better, as our president-elect Joe Biden has put it. Hello and welcome to Think Atlantic, the series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategic Division in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Muzerg and I am your host for this show. Today's episode is the last of the year before a short holiday break and I am very happy to be joined by IRI's President Dan Twining. Together we are going to look back at what has been a very crazy year and that's the year 2020 of course. Allow me to uh, introduce you to Dan, uh, who has been IRI's president since 2017. Prior to that, he worked as director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. And he also served, among other things, as a foreign policy advisor to late U.S. Senator John McCain, a man I think both of us have immense uh, respect for. And Dan, you, uh, I know for a fact that uh, uh, you are a listener and a fan of uh, Think Atlantic. So thanks for your support for the program. And thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. And welcome to the show. Thibaut, thanks. It's so great to be here with you. I've really admired uh, your series and I'm delighted to be on it. And I will try to uh, meet the high standards that you have set with previous conversations. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. I have no doubt about it. Let's start by talking about, I guess, the topic of the year, because I think very few people will look back at this year uh, with much nostalgia. Uh, it has been, 2020 has been a highly disruptive year. And of course, if there is just one word or one thing that should define 2020, it is COVID-19. Uh, the pandemic has led to global social and economic disruption. We're going to talk about it. Mass cancellations and postponements of events of all sorts, including uh, many that we were working on at IRI, worldwide protests and large-scale local national lockdowns. Actually, the Collins Dictionary has chosen lockdown as the word of the year for 2020. But COVID-19 has also had far-reaching political consequences. And I would like us to take some time for this first question to talk about democracy and civil liberties, which is the bread and butter issues for, uh, for the International Republican Institute. So during the crisis and with obviously understandable motives at times, governments have restricted some freedoms that we take usually for granted, such as the freedom of movement, basic freedoms, basically. But they also have entrusted themselves with extraordinary powers. And we already see that some of these governments, including in consolidated democracies, are finding it hard to give back those powers to parliament, the public, and democratic institutions. Does this tell us something, Dan, about the general health of our democracies, which some people claim is in decline across the world? And uh, I'm thinking about the, the Freedom Index, for example, which shows uh, uh, several years in a row of, of declining freedoms around the world. And how can populations, parliament and democratic institutions in general ensure that the exceptional powers that many executives have taken during the, the pandemic, and sometimes understandably, right, how do we ensure that these 
exceptional powers remain what they're supposed to be. That is exceptional. Tivo, it's a great and big question. You know, I think we probably have to break it down into several categories. So, I mean, one is to think about uh, a country like China, which really imposed a total police state, total lockdown of hundreds of millions of people and used very repressive forms of censorship and surveillance uh, to control the pandemic in the country where it broke out, which was China. That was not uh, necessarily a success story. I mean, we've seen uh, democracies very nearby, like Taiwan, like South Korea, like New Zealand and on, actually very successfully control the pandemic without imposing police state brutality of the kind you saw in the People's Republic of China, where doctors who wanted to warn the world were silenced, where journalists who wanted to tell the truth about what was happening were imprisoned or silenced or censored. So uh, I think the first category of countries, as you suggest, is sort of authoritarian states that have essentially manipulated the health crisis for political purposes. We've seen in many countries, Cambodia, Azerbaijan, so many, power grabs by executives who who really wanted to weaponize the pandemic uh, against political opponents, against civil society, uh, to really close off uh, space for democratic dissent. So that's one group of countries. Uh, the second group of countries, again, I would come back to uh, the democracies that have handled the health crisis very well. Uh, and there, uh, there are strong elements of civic trust, civic cohesion, uh, uh, democratic institutions with high degrees of integrity, enlightened leaders who believe in science and who took public health steps, but also importantly, in the context of the Asian countries, they had been through something like this before. They had been through it with SARS and other contagious diseases. So COVID was not new. Uh, really, when we look at societies that have been most stressed by the pandemic in a health sense, it's really the big democracies, Europe, the United States, countries like India, countries like Brazil. And there, there really is just a different balance between state and society, between what governments can impose and what citizens are willing to accept. And so uh, we have seen different steps taken in countries in Europe than we have seen, for instance, in North America. I think fundamentally, and I know there's a, this is a big topic, so I'm not going to cover it here, but fundamentally, uh, history will judge not simply how countries handled really these first six or eight or 10 months of the health crisis, but also how they built back out of it, right? Some of the leading global vaccines have been produced in the West, in the United States, in Europe, and obviously the solution to the health crisis is an effective vaccine where you've seen Western companies really lead it. You also will, uh, I think, be judged as a country on your economic resiliency and your ability to put back, to build back better, as our president-elect Joe Biden has put it. And so uh, some countries are managing that better than others. I mean, the U.S. stock market is at an all-time high, extraordinarily, even at a time when uh, so many Americans are suffering great hardship due to the economic impact of the crisis. So there are all these different ways to judge the effects of the pandemic. And frankly, I think the fact that we're still in the middle of it make it hard to step back and see that fundamentally, we're going to need to judge countries' responses based on the resilience of their populations, how they managed through it, the fact that they did not use police state forms of brutality and censorship, and the fact that they created really positive, hopefully economic uh, solutions, as well as governance solutions. And the last thing I would say, of course, is that in the United States, I mean, we are in the midst of a power transition between uh, the outgoing Trump administration and the incoming Biden administration. 
So uh, democracy can work in a pandemic, as we saw with South Korea's elections and many others. And fundamentally, the best way to uh, prevent leaders from abusing their executive authority is to be able to hold them accountable. That includes through free media, that includes through independent courts, that includes through active civil society, and that includes through free and fair elections. So citizens can choose governments and leaders that they see as responsive to their concerns on the pandemic. Dan, let's let's get back to this this idea that you just started to develop about populations keeping their elected officials or their officials under control. Because one aspect of the COVID-19 crisis, uh, I think an immediate aspect of the crisis, it's social dimension, uh, which you talked about uh, already with, with a lot of people have it going through right now, very hard economic situation, but also uh, a social unrest. And this comes on top of a period that was already pretty tense socially. 2019 had been pretty rough on the, on the civil unrest score with many demonstrations rocking the world and very often in authoritarian states. So there's Hong Kong, uh, what happened in Sudan last year, Algeria, Chile, Lebanon. This year, with the social and economic consequences of the COVID-19 plane to sea, and despite the lockdowns, there have been discontent uh, uh, showing up. And it seems to have spread to, to countries that maybe would, did not think that they would go through uh, this kind of, uh, uh, of social unrest. I'm, I'm thinking, of course, of Belarus, where there's been massive protests following the absolute mishandling of the pandemic by, by the dictator uh, uh, Lukashenko, uh, and, and the protests are still ongoing. But there's also been protests for different reasons in consolidated democracies, and including the, the United States and, and France. Obviously, these are very different demonstrations of people's power. And on the one hand, you've had in Belarus very uh, sharp examples of, of police brutality. And on the other hand, in the US and France, uh, although the demonstrations were very often against uh, police brutality, we have also seen uh, demonstrations turning into into rioting. Just mentioning Portland, Oregon, and Paris, France, where there have been some uh, uh, some protests turning into basically uh, uh, looting and, and, and rioting, and obviously very strong condemnations of it by the by the political elites. But what I'm concerned here, Dan, is that it's not so much that there you know there is an eruption of violence and it's happened in the past, will happen again. But this sort of division between riots or between basically peaceful demonstrations that do not necessarily reach their goal. After all, President Lukashenko is still right now sitting in Minsk in the presidential palace. And in democracies, demonstrations in which there is rioting that erupts, and we're seeing parts of the intelligentsia that is actually starting to justify the violent side of the protest. I'm thinking of Vicky Osterweil's uh, In Defense of Looting, a book which uh, came out this year and which clearly justified violence as a means to to change society. Now, we've got used to a, a sort of model of peaceful protest as a way to advance civil society's agenda, to advance democracy, the days of the peaceful resistance and, and the singing revolutions. Are these days over? If not, then how do we rebalance the, the demands for citizens who feel that they have no other choice to get their voices heard than to demonstrate, and those who ask for public order? Are these two demands now incompatible? So look, Sibo, I think you fundamentally have to distinguish between democratic societies where citizens do have a voice and a vote and authoritarian societies where they do not. I mean, in the case of Belarus, it's clear Lukashenko stole the last election in September. He stole it. He did not win the election. He lost. 
uh, yet he is clinging to power. So he is uh, an unconstitutional and illegitimate leader. And people are right to be protesting that, not through violence, but through forms of peaceful democratic dissent, including their right to take to the streets and to demand free and fair new elections that actually uh, reflect the people's view of who should be uh, their leader. So uh, in, in an authoritarian society, dissent channels are so limited. This is why it's always ironic when uh, scholars and analysts argue that there is some kind of stability, quote unquote, in authoritarian states. Of course, they are highly unstable. That goes for China's Communist Party apparatus. That goes for the Putin regime in Russia. That goes for a country like Belarus with Lukashenko, where there are not those peaceful channels for uh, citizens to express their political voice and their political preference. And therefore, the action takes place in the streets. As you alluded to with Hong Kong, we saw big protests in Siberia earlier this year. We have seen uh, very active street demonstrations in Iran and many other countries uh, that are not democratic. So uh, your question of political violence in a democracy, I mean, I would argue political violence is never acceptable in a democracy. And certainly in the U.S. context, the greatest gains, for instance, the civil rights movement have occurred through peaceful forms of dissent, where citizens hold us as a society to our founding ideals and our own highest standards as articulated by our own leaders, uh, that that is the way to make progress, that the political violence is not a solution. And frankly, uh, violence in the context of the U.S. or France or other developed democracies most often discredits a cause. So uh, the uh, violence, for instance, you mentioned in Portland, Oregon, really discredited the cause of social and racial justice, which is what the vast majority of people were peacefully protesting about there. So of course, in a democracy, there must be law and order, but in a democracy, citizens have lots of channels to express grievances, to express dissent, and to uh, use the power of their vote to uh, change political outcomes, as we have already seen in the United States. And that's, that's where dissent has to lie in a democracy, including with a strong and healthy opposition. I mean, one thing, Thibault, we've seen is in uh, some countries, including some more transitional democracies, the opposition is very weak and divided. And that allows for uh, abuses of executive authority, even in a democracy. And so a strong and vital political opposition is really essential to holding governments accountable and creating uh, a channel for citizens to express dissent and organize to change political outcomes. And I would add, uh, Dan, that uh, a strong and effective opposition is actually in the interests also of the government who is in power, even though they would ne not necessarily agree with that at first sight. But it's something that, uh, of course, it's, it's, it's not easy to uh, uh, to have to deal with a strong and, and organized opposition. But in the end, it makes, uh, I guess it makes the state much more responsive and, and, and definitely more uh, more reactive to people's demands. But we'll get back to the question of the vote and uh, and the United States and, and, and elections. But I would like to take a few minutes now, uh, Dan, if that's okay with you, to move to a more geopolitical analysis of uh, of the COVID nineteen crisis because we need we need to uh, I think we need to talk about about the geopolitical dimension of of this crisis. Now, if I am to believe a recent projection that was made by the OECD, uh, it looks like uh, one of the economic losers of the pandemic globally is going to be Europe, or at least in the short term, with America doing well and China at least at the beginning. 
turning out a bit less economically damaged than the others. Although I have to say, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the reputational and diplomatic self-harm that the Communist Party in China has caused to itself over the past year. But beyond that, um, it, it looks like in 2021, uh, what we are going to see is that, or what we've already started to see, is that China might be more assertive, maybe more aggressive even, uh, it certainly has been in 2020, and certainly continuing to be disrespectful of basic democratic and human rights in Xinjiang, but also inside in its own in Hong Kong, but also inside its own borders and outside. Now, Xi Jinping, of course, would like us to believe that this is part of a, an unstoppable rise of communist China. But do you see this rise and its consequences as inevitable? And what should be our common strategy in what I would call the larger West that would include uh, Japan and the Pacific Rim, North America, Europe, and possibly India as well, to, to respond to, uh, not necessarily to this rise, but this assertive and aggressive uh, uh, behavior by the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, Thibaut, it's a great question. Uh, so look, just to unpack it a little bit, the Chinese Communist Party is fundamentally afraid of its own citizens, which is why China's growing power has been accompanied by growing repression, growing surveillance, growing brutality, including in regions like Xinjiang, including in cities like Hong Kong, where they have taken away the rights of Hong Kong citizens uh, that they had previously agreed on. So uh, fundamentally, the Chinese Communist Party rules through both power and fear. And fundamentally, China's projection of its authority is about trying to maintain the authority of the Chinese Communist Party at home. Now, uh, this really matters, uh, including to Europeans, including to Americans. Uh, even if you are not exercised by the rights of the Uyghurs or Hong Kong citizens, you should be concerned about the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to co-opt, corrupt, and coerce within our own democracies. We at IRI have been sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party. I've been sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party, as have members of the IRI Board of Directors, just for speaking up for the rights of Hong Kong citizens. China wants to censor free speech abroad and control narratives, including in our own countries, uh, about China. We have seen recently with Australia, China making an extraordinary set of demands that Australia back down from its interest in an investigation into how the COVID crisis began in China. China has weaponized trade against Australia, has made demands that would hollow out Australian sovereignty, demanding that Australia silence university lecturers and media outlets that may be critical of China's treatment of its own citizens. So if you live in a democracy, even if you are not overly exercised by the rights of the Chinese people, you should be exercised by the idea that a, an authoritarian foreign power is trying to police speech in your country and co-opt political elites and co-opt media narratives to suit the interests of the Chinese leadership rather than to report and tell the objective truth uh, about what is happening in China. Uh, what do we need to do about it? It's for Chinese people to change China. Uh, as Hong Kong citizens continue to try to do, and others. For the rest of us, democracies need to act together. We need to stand up for our values, including not just in the real world, but very much in the digital domain. Some of the most insidious Chinese uh, censorship and surveillance techniques are exported through technology, including through firms like Huawei that want to build Europe's telecommunications infrastructure. Uh, as well as uh, Chinese activity in the developing world around building digital and telecoms infrastructure. So being very clear 
uh, that when you are doing business with a Chinese company, often it is not actually a Chinese private sector company. It is tied to the Chinese Communist Party. It is, it is part of the party state nexus in China and that China has very political goals that it pursues, including through its economic engagement. So working together, the US, Europe, other like-minded countries, as you suggest, in the Pacific Rim, India, others, to protect our own sovereignty, to protect our democratic institutions from China's Communist Party attempts to control and coerce and co-opt, uh, and to stand together to support a free and open internet, to support rules of the road for trade and investment that reflect a level playing field, that uphold the rights of citizens and don't uh, allow vectors for the Chinese Communist Party to influence the politics within third countries. We have a lot of work to do together here. I think that really though importantly, many people's eyes have been opened all over the world about the danger that the Chinese Communist Party poses. And we've seen that Thibo in lots of public opinion surveys showing that the Chinese leadership's overreach, its weaponization of COVID, its propaganda and other abuses have really led uh, citizens in so many countries, majorities of citizens in so many countries to take a very negative view of China. And if this country wants to rise to be the next superpower, it's going to encounter very significant headwinds as long as global public opinion is very hostile to the Chinese Communist Party because of its uh, authoritarian overreach. Indeed. And uh, uh, when you mention opinion polling, uh, there is also opinion polling done by IRI that, that suggests that, uh, at least in Europe, uh, the uh, image of the Communist Party of China has been uh, uh, really impacted by the way it has behaved in several countries, although not in all. So watch this space. There will probably be uh, some discussions about it next year, uh, as we will uh, hopefully unfold the results of this uh, of this polling that I'm that I'm mentioning. But uh, Dan, we've been very global so far, and I would like to focus a little bit uh, on on Europe. And I, I was saying earlier that that, that Europe stands to be one one at least initially of the biggest, maybe not global loser, but the, the areas that are going to have a difficult time getting out of the pandemic. Uh, but there, there have also been some interesting developments in Europe this year. Not all of them are good. I mean, Brexit is, I, I do not personally count Brexit as a positive development and not definitely not the way uh, it is going right now. Uh, but th th there have also been multiple crises internal to the to the EU. But there's also been a major deal on the EU recovery fund, which is a, a huge step towards budgetary integration. At the, at the same time, we have seen over the past few months some European politicians developing a discourse that basically decouples the European and the Atlantist ideal, something that uh, Jan Sorocek and I discussed in an article in World Politics Review this summer. And uh, apologies for the self-promotion here. But... <laughs> What I found is that this development is very new. And for people of my generation that were raised in the times of NATO and EU enlargement, this this seems to be completely crazy, right? NATO and EU NATO and EU integration seems seem to go hand in hand historically. Are you worried that such a decoupling in the minds or in the discourses of a few politicians could ultimately endanger the transatlantic relationship or even the European Union, or maybe ultimately both? I think we all worry about it, Thibaut. Um, you know, there's a new generation rising in Europe who doesn't remember, obviously, World War II, who didn't come of age during the Cold War, and they don't recognize that the uh, extraordinary success of modern Europe uh, really was premised on this foundational transatlantic partnership that just reset the terms of geopolitics uh, within Europe. 
uh, and that created uh, a shield against first the Soviet Union and now Russia uh, that has enabled really uh, an extraordinary economic miracle to occur in Europe and kept the peace in a region that for many centuries was really at the center of global conflict. So uh, Europe's accomplishments and gains are real. The United States would like to continue to see a strong Europe that is vibrant and outwardly oriented, that remains a trade and investment superpower, as Europe is, uh, but that also can look after its own security. Uh, NATO is central to looking after uh, security in Europe so that Europe can continue to invest in its citizens, can continue to invest in innovation and growth uh, that serves all people. You know, I do think there's been, I hope, a bit of an awakening just in the past few years that uh, great power competition is alive outside of Europe, that countries like Russia and China have predatory designs, aggressive predatory revisionist designs, including in the European space, including in the Arctic, including in the Mediterranean, including in Europe's East, and that uh, the transatlantic relationship, even if we didn't have it as a legacy issue, we would really need to create it now to help the West protect itself and stand together uh, against new threats and new dangers. So uh, Europe's internal uh, lack of cohesion actually sometimes is a strategic problem for the United States. We want Europe to be strong and unified, but we don't want Europe to be an independent force, obviously, that acts against the United States because we continue to think we share common interests and common values. Uh, including on things like climate change, including on the international rules of the road for trade and investment, including in just the fact that we treat our citizens with dignity, whereas in much of the world, governments still don't do that. Uh, the fact that hopefully we can take a humane approach to issues of migration and conflict resolution and stabilization to help countries uh, along the European periphery in North Africa, in the Middle East, govern their citizens a little better and more justly and create more economic opportunity so that millions of people don't want to flee those regions and try to come to Europe, that we have a big common agenda, uh, including in sustaining a free and open internet, including in leading an energy transition that's already underway to help protect uh, the environment and uh, further boost our economies through clean forms of new growth. So there's just so much to do together. Uh, and uh, it would be a shame if uh, the U.S. and Europe were to pull in separate directions. Uh, you mentioned Brexit. I mean, my last thought on that is it remains to be seen, obviously. The good news is that NATO keeps Britain together with Europe, uh, as well as obviously with the United States and Canada. And so it seems to me that Brexit makes NATO a more important venue because Britain is leaving the EU that in fact, uh, Britain's security relationship with its European neighbors uh, can run very directly through NATO in ways that are reassuring and reinforcing uh, all around. Uh, we'll see what happens on the economic side for sure. But uh, uh, in a world in which you still have an American superpower, you have a rising Chinese giant, you have uh, big aspirations in the developing world, it seems to me that Europe really can play a central role, including a, as what remains the world's biggest economy, the world's biggest market and leverage that power uh, to affect outcomes that are good, not just for Europeans, but frankly, for, uh, for all of us uh, who work closely with our European allies. 
I guess we've got a an interesting and a great roadmap for uh, Europe and for IRI's transatlantic strategy, and also I guess for the for this program. So uh, there will be more in 2021 about this, and and I hope uh, Dan that uh, hopefully next year in December we can uh, have a, a similar program and uh, and and discuss how well things have gone in 2021 for the uh, transatlantic relationship. But uh, let me cross the Atlantic here and talk. let's talk a little bit about the United States because we cannot talk about 2020 without mentioning its most important election, which was, of course, the U.S. presidential election of November the 3rd. And there were also uh, congressional uh, elections, of course, all over the United States. Um, the contest has kept all political geeks and much of the population on both sides of the Atlantic in suspense for months during the campaign and even days after the actual elections uh, with Joe Biden winning the majority of the Electoral College in a nail-biting finish. We, we've talked extensively about the election itself on Think Atlantic with a special program with uh, uh, some of IRI's volunteer trainers on uh, on basically the communication side of the of the election. But what I would like to focus on with you is more about the future, about policy and about, in particular, foreign policy. What do you expect the foreign policy approach of the Biden administration to look like in the coming month? We know that Stein is going to change, but are we going to see major departures from President Trump's approach to foreign affairs, or is there going to be some continuity? And if yes, on which topics? I know it's a, a very large question, but uh, I would love to, to hear your thoughts on this. Geez, Thibaut, thanks for asking me all the easy questions. <laughs> so um, look, I don't think it's going to be the second coming of the Obama administration. I think that's the first point to make, is that really for the last uh, more than 10 years now, for nearly 15 years, we have seen two different American presidents who in, in fundamental ways wanted to step back a bit from the world. And Obama and Trump had totally different styles. So that may not be the most obvious point, but you know, Barack Obama ran for office on the basis of nation building at home, that America was doing too much in the world. Uh, and he had a rather cool relationship, for instance, with America's European allies, uh, with uh, other countries. So, um, Biden, I think, for the president-elect, uh, and when we think about the Biden administration's foreign policy, uh, it may be that we go back to a bit of an earlier era and we look at uh, then-Senator Biden's record. He was a very strong advocate for NATO enlargement. You know, he was a leading voice on transatlantic issues in the United States Senate. He was skeptical of uh, interventions in the Middle East, uh, although he did vote in favor of the Iraq war. So he, you know, he was not an isolationist by any measure, but he was skeptical uh, about uh, what American power could accomplish in the Middle East. I think, you know, he brings uh, decades and decades of uh, experience building networks with world leaders from his time as vice president, from his time as chairman of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He will rely on those very heavily. His team, who we have been talking to during this transition period, are the first to say, we know it's not 2015 or 2016 anymore. The world has changed a lot just in the last four to five years. That includes China's extraordinary uh, assertiveness and aggressiveness. Uh, that includes Russia's meddling, including obviously in the American 2016 elections, as well as in a host of other countries, you know, the very aggressive campaign of poisoning and illicit activity that the Russian security services have conducted in Europe. Uh, so I think the Biden team has their eyes wide open. 
uh, about the fact that there is great power competition at play in the world, about the fact that it's very difficult to do business with China's leaders, uh, to take their word at face value, given what we know uh, their ambitions are. Uh, of course, you will see, I think, more continuity with the past in terms of returning to the Paris uh, Climate Accord, uh, more leadership on, uh, obviously, on climate change. You know, I think profoundly you'll see a difference in style, that pre uh, President-elect Biden understands that America's allies are perhaps our greatest source of strength in the world, one of our greatest sources of strength, that unity with them, working closely with them, is part of the solution to some of the very difficult equations out there in East Asia, in the Middle East, with Russia, uh, et cetera. But let us see, you know, there are currents in the Democratic Party, and I think your listeners need to be aware of this. There are currents on the left in the Democratic Party that are very isolationist, that almost mirror currents on the sort of the far right inside the Republican Party, that do not think the United States should be active in the world, that see the U.S. as some kind of imperial power, that actually think that, you know, uh, someone like Maduro has a right to grind Venezuela into the ground through kleptocratic autocracy, and that that is not the United States' concern, even as millions of desperate refugees pour out of Venezuela, uh, wanting a different future than they are getting from their terrible regime. So uh, the president-elect will need to navigate some of those currents on the left. And last thing, Thibault, he's also going to have to navigate very much just some of the pressure inside the United States. The COVID pandemic has enhanced inequality. It has really displaced a lot of people at the lower end of the economic spectrum. There are obviously extraordinary uh, investments that we need to make in public health, in infrastructure, in education, in other areas. And those should not come at the expense of American international leadership because they work together. Uh, a safe and prosperous world in which America is active is a world that is that creates the kind of conditions for America to grow and prosper and be at peace and at home. But I think the president-elect is going to come under some pressure to not devote too much of his attention to foreign policy, given the obviously the big uh, domestic challenges that confront us. And I hope that uh, that does not lead to uh, you know disappointment on the side of our allies, or I hope it doesn't lead to opportunism on the side of aggressive revisionist powers. But the United States can and should do both, invest at home and lead abroad. Thanks, Dan. And there is, here there is so much stuff uh, that takes us already in 2021 that uh, I think we've got the program of the schedule of Think Atlantic for 2021 uh, already set because we're going to talk again about the uh, President-elect Biden's uh, administration's foreign policy goals. Uh, we will get back to the question of isolationism. Uh, we'll talk about inequality, about the economy. So that, that's great. We're already projecting ourselves in the future. And in some ways, that's also what I wanted to, to do in this, uh, in this program. And actually, that, that gets me to, to uh, one last question, or <clears throat> rather a request from me. We've covered three major developments that have marked the transatlantic space for 2020. But I'd like us, uh, if, if you're okay with that, Dan, to uh, take our crystal balls and uh, to look at what could, and I say could because we know that things do not always happen the way, uh, uh, the, the way we think they will, but what would be the three major developments that you think uh, may well define 2021? Just three, even if it's three words, I'm totally fine with that. But uh, let's take our crystal ball here and, and look into the future. So I'm not necessarily kind of predicting all of these 100% as things that will happen, but things that I think are imaginable and that could create different outcomes that would be noteworthy. 
So one is a very strong U.S. economic recovery, where the U.S. essentially leads the world out of the economic crisis it has been placed in through, through COVID and hopefully pulls Europe and other friends and allies along, and that powers emerging market growth and other things. So one is a stronger than expected uh, U.S. economic recovery. Two is, uh, you know, we saw in 2019 before COVID, as you suggested, that people power was just on the march around the world, around the world, from, uh, you know, Armenia to Sudan, to Algeria, to Hong Kong, to China and Russia, to Iran, to Venezuela, that in fact, uh, once the health situation stabilizes, you will see kind of hopefully a democratic upsurge to offset what has been an authoritarian outburst under COVID, that people, people in the streets will fight back uh, for the rights that were deprived, that were taken away from them, including through COVID. Or uh, they will just fight back against leaders who frankly didn't care much for their health uh, or their economic future. They will fight back against autocrats uh, who have spent this period not looking after their citizens. So that's two. And three, you know, I think you could see a leadership crisis in an important country like Russia. Vladimir Putin has withdrawn from any public activities. There were rumors that he was sick or unwell. There are rumors that he's negotiating uh, about his future and that of his family. But just as Lukashenko has held office for 26 years and suddenly looks like a very short timer, and most people did not expect that when Belarus scheduled its election just a couple months ago. Uh, that you may see real pressure on a significant political leader in a country like Russia for change. You know, when you think about Russia and the countries that are most similar to it in terms of geography and culture, you think of Ukraine and Belarus. And look what's happened in Ukraine really since 2014, uh, that this is a country that can't get far enough away from Russia that wants a European Western democratic future. Belarusians now are voting with their feet not necessarily for the same European future, but very much for a post-Lukashenko, more modern, open country. Uh, and these things, Russian citizens are not immune from these impulses as well. Uh, it's just that the Russian apparatus of repression is more sophisticated and Russia enjoys more energy wealth with which to fund its security apparatus. Uh, but uh, I would not be surprised at all, just as we were surprised in places like Sudan uh, or places like Armenia over the past few years, I wouldn't be surprised at all if uh, this kind of political disruption hit a major country like Russia. Okay, well, it's true that Russia was not the topic that we, we talked about much during the, the past uh, half an hour of this uh, podcast. And you can listen to the conversation I had with Andreas Kubilius over the summer about Europe's and the West relationship in Russia, which was very, very interesting. And hopefully next year, we will be able to cover uh, this topic. But Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to take part in today's show and uh, going through uh, sort of very quickly over all uh, of these uh, of these topics with me, and I, I really hope that uh, uh, we can discuss them more uh, in the in the next uh, few episodes uh, of uh, of Think Atlantic, and hopefully next December uh, we can all uh, come together again uh, to discuss what has happened in 2021 with you. So, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I have enjoyed recording it, then 
please do check out Dan's Twitter account. He tweets at Deep Sea Twining, and it should definitely be followed. And uh, if you haven't done so already, you should also take the time to follow IRI's Twitter, which is at IRI Global. And this way you will be informed about what we do to uh, promote democracy in the transatlantic space and around the world. And you should also visit our website, by the way, which is www.iri.org. This is the end of this episode of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Allow me, as well as Dan Twining, I'm sure, and uh, my colleagues Stanislava Stachowa, Hannah Mont, and Sam Johannes, who do a fantastic work producing this series, to wish you all the best for the holidays, despite the current circumstances, which I know are quite hard for many of you. Uh, please do join me uh, in hopefully celebrating the holidays. I wish you a great holiday season, Merry Christmas, and of course, all the best for the new year. I will be back to wish you this happy new year on January the 8th, as we will resume our regular schedule and we'll have quite a treat to start the year because yes, as I promised many times since the start of this show, David Goodhart is going to be back to discuss uh, his new book, Head, Hand, Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century. In the meantime, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show and of course, share it with your friends and colleagues. We love it when we get more listeners. Merry Christmas to you all and of course to your loved ones and we look forward to talking to you again in 2021.